0: This month on Security Management Highlights.
1: In a case like the wildfires, sometimes people are not clear if they're responding to a certain aspect of this disaster.
0: Disaster recovery can quickly spiral out of control if it's not managed properly. Senior Editor Mark Tarallo stops by to talk about best practices to employ when the
2: worst case scenario hits. SSNC employee allegedly did not follow established procedures after receiving email that asked him to wire tillage funds to the scammer's account in Hong Kong?
0: Not so fast. That email in your inbox could be from a hacker, not your CEO. Assistant editor Megan Gates joins us to talk about how cyber attackers are using business email compromise scams to make billions. Plus,
3: there's been several terrorist plots in this country that have been uncovered by contract security personnel just being alert and receiving proper training.
0: A member spotlight on Eddie Sorrell's CPP PSP of DSI Security Services. He discusses the evolution of contract security over the past few decades. I'm your host, Assistant Editor Holly Gilbert Stoll, and that's all coming up on this edition of Security Management Highlights. On May 1st this year, a wildfire began southwest of Fort McMurray in Alberta, Canada. The blaze spread, eventually destroying approximately 2,400 homes and buildings and forcing the largest wildfire evacuation in Albertan history. As Senior Editor Mark Tarallo explains, managing such large-scale disasters may seem overwhelming, but there are best practices that can help disaster management experts bring clarity in the midst of chaos. Hey Mark, welcome to the podcast. Hi Holly. You write that effective disaster response depends on not getting lost in complexity, and we can only imagine just uh, how complicated these events must become. You cite the example of the Fort McMurray wildfire. What happened there, and how does it kind of illustrate your point?
1: Yeah, the wildfire there was really an incredible, just wide-ranging tragedy in that the fire spread to over a million and a half acres, and it forced at least 80,000 people from their homes, and really it took months. months until the fire was declared under control. It finally was declared under control around early July, around July 5th. The estimates were about 2,400 homes and buildings were destroyed in the fire. And the Insurance Bureau of Canada, they estimated the total damage at 3.5 billion. So it was really this cataclysmic event.
0: Yes, definitely. And one source you spoke to said responding to such a wide ranging disaster can actually create a crisis within a crisis and a post event issue could even rise to the level of creating a second disaster. Can you explain?
1: Yes. To give an example of a crisis within a crisis, a source that I interviewed, Peter Power, he actually chaired the World Conference on Disaster Management held in Toronto last June. And he's a crisis response expert who heads the London-based Visor Consultants. And what Powers told me was that this crisis within a crisis can be very problematic. For an example, in the wildfires, you had a large group of South African firefighters who were Brought in to fight the blaze. But what happened was, reports came out that the pay that the South African firefighters were getting from the Canadian government was incredibly low, only $15 a day for fighting the fire. And sometimes that means working in 12 hour shifts for only $15 a day. So this incident really became an international episode. The South African firefighters decided to go on strike, and it was written about all over the world. Finally, the Alberta premier, uh, Rachel Notley, she stepped in and helped resolve it. And in fact, power gave premier Notley pretty high marks for her leadership there in that regard.
0: Excellent. You wrote about a three-step approach as far as best practices in responding to disasters. Who was your source and what did she say?
1: Yes, these three steps come from Desi Mattel Anderson. She's actually the former chief innovation advisor for the U.S. Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA, and she has long experience in crisis management, crisis response. In fact, when she was at FEMA, she headed the first innovation team to provide real-time problem-solving in The Hurricane Sandy response. But in terms of the wildfires, Mattel Anderson gave three steps that are very helpful in responding to disasters. The first step is defining exactly what the disaster is. And while that may seem basic, as she says, it's often skipped. And in a case like the wildfires, sometimes people are not clear if they're responding to a certain aspect of this disaster. Is it to get people relocated? safely? Is it to control the fire? Is it to get economic development restarted and the community back on its feet? Really you need a clear definition of what problem you're trying to respond to. And that's key to formulating a targeted and focused response. Now, the second step in Mattel Anderson's method is to create a challenge statement that defines the who and the why. That is, who will be served or helped and why the effort is necessary. And what happens is, again, can sound kind of basic, but this is sometimes skipped in response efforts. And to give an example, sometimes responders, to a disaster will decide, okay, we're going to build a response-based app so we could use to coordinate our efforts, but they build the app when they're not really sure who the target audience is and what actual purpose the app will solve. They'll just be like, hey, we need an app. Let's do it. So you need a challenge statement. Who are you serving? Who are you helping? Why the effort is necessary? And third step is formulating a solution. And she broke that down into a process where in the first part of that step, you welcome as many ideas as possible. Even if they sound a little bit out of the box or off the wall, someone may have a good idea. So solicit solutions. How do you think we can best solve this problem? How can we best respond in this situation? And then when you get all these ideas, you brainstorm and you try to pick the best ones, the ones that are clear in serving your target audience, why you want to serve them, and how you wanna serve them.
0: How does focused leadership, Mark, finally help bring clarity to all these issues?
1: Yes, focused leadership, very key. And when I interviewed Peter Power, he gave several relevant examples. As I mentioned, He gave Rachel Notley, the Alberta premier, high marks in that she seemed to be very focused. She was making a lot of public appearances, giving the message that her and her government were in control. He compared her to New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani, who, if you recall, when after the 9-11 attacks, Giuliani was very visible, very vocal, and Giuliani once said that his philosophy of crisis leadership is be visible be composed be resilient and be vocal which he was pretty much all of those things on 9-11 in new york in contrast peter power cited former president george w bush where there was a huge incident involving bush when hurricane katrina first struck one of bush's first public appearances was being photographed in the Air Force One air jet at 40,000 feet in the air, kind of looking down over at the area. He was not in the area. He wasn't meeting with people. He was 40,000 feet in the air. And as Power says, as a symbol of leadership, this seems very aloof, distant, and removed. And it's not the type of focused leadership that you really want to portray. Again, not only Notley, but Peter Power cited Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Trudeau often was seen getting out of his helicopter. Interacting with people. Notley was seen photographed giving evacuees preloaded debit cards. Very hands on moments, hands on leadership that they were portraying there.
0: Excellent examples. Mark, thank you so much for stopping by to talk about disaster response. Thanks, Holly. That email in your inbox may look like it's from an executive at your company, but it may very well be from a hacker. According to the FBI, attackers have used this spoofing technique to steal more than $3 billion from enterprises around the world. Cybersecurity editor Megan Gates is here to tell us more. Hello, Megan. Thanks for coming by today.
2: Hey, Holly. Thanks for having me.
0: What is a business email compromise scam, and why do so many people continue to fall victim to this type of attack?
2: Well, so we don't have to keep saying business email compromise scam over and over again. Let's just call them BECs for short. And they target businesses working with foreign suppliers or businesses that regularly perform wire transfer payments. Sometimes in the past, these were called man and email scams, but... The definition was recently updated so that they weren't confused with a different type of scam. And BECs typically involve a scammer sending an email from a legitimate looking address sometimes it's an address that mirrors your own company's email address or someone that you might do business with. I'm requesting a wire transfer to an account. And these accounts are usually in foreign banks, so outside of the United States, especially to Asian banks, those in Hong Kong and China. And so basically it's asking someone to, you know, sending them an email being like, hey, I need this amount of money wired to this account for this purpose. And so the person getting the email trusts that it's legitimate, so they engage in this wire transfer thinking that the money is going to pay for this legitimate business transaction when in fact it's going to a bank account controlled by a scammer who's then probably going to take that money and transfer it several times so it can't be seized or necessarily easily traced. And these types of scams are really effective because people, they trust their email system. You know, if you're sitting at your desk and you get an email from your CEO or your CFO and it's their email address, you're going to trust that it's from that person. So you're probably going to open it. And if it tells you to do something, you're probably going to do it. So this means that you are security surrounding your email and making sure that it's an authentic, legitimate email has to be really, really good. And there was a fascinating case that just came out that was written about actually on Trend Micro's blog earlier this month involving SSNC Technology, which provides investment management software and services. And it's being sued by Tillage Commodities Fund, an investment firm, after it lost $6 million to a BEC. An SSNC employee allegedly did not follow established procedures after receiving an email that asked him to wire Tillage funds to the scammer's account in Hong Kong. And the scammers used an email address where the name Tillage was misspelled, uh, requesting the wire transfer. And before that request, Tillage had never had and money transferred outside the United States which SSNC should have known as it was handling legitimate wire requests for tillage since 2014 And the scammers were only caught after SSNC had initiated wire transfers seven different times and then decided maybe it should call someone at Tillage rather than just relying on email correspondence to say, what's going on here and is this correct? And according to the lawsuit filed earlier this month, SSNC failed to exercise even a modicum of care and responsibility in connection with known and obvious cybersecurity threats. They're not the only ones to fall victim to these kind of scams. Uh, Recent reports include that Seagate, Snapchat, and Sprouts Farmers Market have also fallen victim to them. And it was interesting looking at Trend Micro's sort of rundown of what they said about these scams. And they said, A closer look at the Tillage Fund incident shows that not only were they a victim of a BEC scam, but also a victim of the negligence of its associates' employees, a matter that could have been prevented. Consequently, the human error on SSNC's part amounted to a massive financial loss for Tillage Fund. Human negligence, either by a lack of knowledge or carelessness, is why BEC scams and other social engineering tricks work. It simply makes it easier for them to infiltrate a system without having to use more sophisticated tools and methods.
0: Your article mentions some statistics that the FBI has made available regarding these email campaigns and cyber attacks. What has the FBI found when looking into these hacks?
2: Yeah, I'm really glad that you asked that, Holly, because conveniently, after my article had already gone to press, the FBI actually updated its numbers on BEC scams and said that since January 2015, there's been a 1,300% increase in identified exposed losses related to these kinds of scams. They've also found that they've had complaints of the scam in all 50 states and also in 100 countries. This is way up from the number that I cited in my article where I had that BEC, B.E.C. scams had affected more than 2,126 victims globally and cost nearly $21.5 million. So that's a major, major increase. The most recent FBI estimates say that the exposed dollar losses for B.E.C. scams were $3.1 billion and it have affected 22,000 different enterprises. And so in a recent public service announcement that the FBI issued this summer, it said that it found that businesses that deploy robust internal prevention techniques at all levels, especially targeting frontline employees who may be the recipients of initial phishing attempts, have proven highly successful in recognizing and deflecting BEC attempts. It's also said that financial institutions are changing their behavior to sort of try and prevent these scams from being effective. So some banks are holding customer requests for international wire transfers for an additional period just so they can verify that they are legitimate
0: wow yes those numbers are very stark indeed how can individuals and companies fight back against these would-be hackers i mean is there anything that the average desktop user can do all the way up to you know the company's security at that corporate level
2: Yeah, there are a lot of different things and a variety of measures that the FBI recommended in its public service announcement, and these range from avoiding free web-based email accounts to being careful about what you post on social media regarding the hierarchy of your company so it's not clear who would be the person who's responsible for initiating and handling wire transfers, and also to be careful about where you share corporate email addresses to give scammers an additional clue as to how they could put in an email address to send you a potential phishing message. The FBI also said to be suspicious of emails sent to you that asked for secrecy or for you to take action quickly. That can be a big red flag. And also consider additional IT and financial security procedures for corporate security. For instance, the FBI said maybe consider out-of-band communication, which is you get an email to initiate a wire transfer and then you actually call someone on the phone to verify, is this legitimate? And then if it's not, you've caught it immediately. You haven't put yourself at any more risk and sent money. It also gave a good suggestion of using forward instead of reply when you're responding to an email. So when you get an email, you know, checking the email address Make sure it's spelled correctly. And then instead of hitting reply or reply all, click the forward button and type in the email that you want it to go to. This is just another way to double check and make sure that your emails are going to the appropriate person and not a scammer.
0: Well, this was great advice for all of our listeners and their organization. So thank you for stopping by and explaining all that, Megan. Thanks for having me, Holly. Finally, our member spotlight this month is on Eddie Sorrell's CPP, PSP, Chief Operating Officer and General Counsel at DIS Security Services. He joined me at ASIS 2016 to talk about the threats his clients are currently facing and how he's seen contract security evolve during his two and a half decades in security management. Welcome to the podcast.
3: Thank you, Holly. Glad to be here.
0: Yes. So tell us about when you joined the society and you're also a volunteer leader. So tell us a little bit about your experience and involvement with ASIS.
3: I actually joined ASIS back in the mid-90s. I was just getting into security management at the time and uh, it was a great tool to to really expand my education, learn more about the industry. And since the early years of being involved in the association, I've accepted numerous positions in volunteer leadership. Currently I'm the council chair for the Security Services Council and that really has allowed me to expand my knowledge base even further. Uh, I think the association does a great job not just networking and making connections, but really giving the ability to the members to expand their education, find out trends, and, and certainly here as we sit here at the show, finding out what's going on day in, day out, because things are evolving so quickly.
0: And how have you used the ASIS network in your own line of work? And tell us a little bit about what you do. Maybe you can tie those two together.
3: Sure. I'm actually involved with a company called DSI Security Services. I started 25 years ago as a security officer and moved up through the ranks to, to accept positions in management and I currently serve as the chief operating officer and general counsel and I rely greatly on as-is connections to reach out and find out what's going on in different states. For example, we're in about 24 different states now. Through the networking opportunities within ASIS, I've been able to not just forge friendships but also professional associations and I can reach out to someone virtually in any state and find out what's going on in the way of licensing what's happening with local boards and bodies, but also just find out the trends going on in particular areas. So ASIS has been invaluable for me in that respect.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing that. And now let's get into a little bit of kind of what you do on the consulting side and what the needs of your
3: clients are. The biggest need that our customers have right now is for information, finding out what the threat environment is, not just how to attack those threats, but what is coming down the road. They rely upon us and all security professionals for that matter to really be on the cutting edge of what they need to know. As you know, our society continues to evolve and there's new threats virtually every day, whether that be insider threats. It can be as simple as employee theft in in an industrial setting to sometimes foreign governments may be trying to attack a cyber infrastructure. So they look to us to make sure that we're up to date on the latest trends of what the threats are and also how to, to mitigate those threats.
0: So as far as the future and your clients obviously on the technology side are going to be dealing with the Internet of Things and lots of connected devices. There's a lot of threats in that space, so is that something that is a concern, and how are you guys helping your clients in that regard?
3: It certainly is a huge concern, and being in the industry for 25 years when I started, the concerns were mostly physical, access control, who's coming into our facility. From an insider threat standpoint, is there employee theft? Is there workplace violence? Those threats are still present, but added to that, you have cyber exposures. There's not a business in America today that does not rely on some type of network to operate their business. So in addition to fiscal threats, we also have to educate our customers and offer solutions on things such as cybersecurity and making sure their networks are secure. And on the technology side, as far as cameras and gates and access control, and that's one of the great things about coming to the ASIS conference each year, you get to see the latest trends and tools, but there is a myriad of threats in that department as well, and thankfully the technology is becoming more and more sophisticated. The analytics and video, for example, can really play a big part in that, but there certainly is a great concern among our customers to make sure the cyber side is safe.
0: So since contract security is a big part of your company and of this industry, how have you seen that field evolve and what's expected today of security officers or what are they excelling at that maybe they weren't or wasn't expected of them 20 years ago?
3: I've seen a big evolution starting as a contract security officer myself 25 years ago. I've seen a real evolution in the way the position is viewed. When I first got into the industry, I think contract security personnel were viewed sort of as an afterthought, just a necessary evil. And when I became one myself, I began to see what an integral role they played in the customer environment where they were serving in the past 25 years. I've seen a tremendous growth area in that segment of our business because they are not just more respected, but they're more relied upon. And one of the misconceptions sometimes the public has is the person employed as a contract security officer may not have. the same type of training as other professionals in that sector, but uh, they're being asked nowadays to guard critical infrastructure sites. There is, depending on what estimates you use, there is anywhere between 1.5 and 2 million security officers in the United States playing a very big role, so they're being relied upon on not just standing by a door and watching access control, but being trained in things like insider threats and reporting suspicious activity. There's been several terrorist plots in this country that have been uncovered by contract security personnel just being alert and receiving proper training and being able to to react. Uh, For example, the San Bernardino situation here recently, there was a contract security officer involved in the evacuation and saved untold lives. Unfortunately, that was a tragic situation, but it was mitigated by a contract security officer. So since my inception as a security officer, 25 years later, I've seen a huge evolution in just how they're treated and also the value they bring to the table.
0: Eddie, thank you so much for joining us
3: my pleasure thank you holly
0: that does it for this month be sure to check out our bonus episode later in october on our cover story about the two-way manager subscribe to us on itunes or soundcloud so you don't miss an episode if you like what you hear please leave us a review on itunes and spread the word about this free podcast for security professionals once again i'm your host assistant editor holly gilbert stowell thanks for tuning in bye bye